I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the Canada 2020 Network. The 2020 Network is brought to you by Interact. Interact connects everyone to the limitless possibilities of digital payments. Whether you are sending, receiving, or requesting money, using Interact Debit to pay by card, phone, or smartwatch, or looking for a business payment solution, they provide fast, convenient, and secure access to your own money. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know way more about the hand of the king in Westeros than I do about Canada's governor general, and that's kind of a problem. So on this show, I'm inviting really smart people into the studio to explain stuff to me like I'm five. Today, I'm talking to David Coletto, the CEO of Abacus Data, about millennials. David, assuming that I don't know anything about avocado toast, what defines a millennial? Millennials uh, are a generation of Canadians, Americans, you name it, uh, typically defined as those born between 1980 and 2000. And what what is the significance of that date range? Well, it's it's, it's contested, and meaning some some see them as bo- starting in 1981, 82. Some say that they end in 1996. Um, and so there, there's there's no perfect or you know. Uh, not perfect, but there's there's no consensus date. But more uh, organizations and researchers use that 1980 to 2000 cutoff. And what I think best defines a generation is what are the shared experiences, both okay. politically, economically, socially, and technologically, that that help define and and unite a generation. So the way I always describe it is I have a, a 20 or something year old cousin who's Lucas. He's at Western University. We're 16 years apart, but we have far more in sim- similar in terms of our upbringing, in terms of our experience, in terms of technology than I would with somebody who's 16 years older than me. And so being t- t- collectively millennials or Gen Gen Y, which is the other term used to describe them, is 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 something that is about shared experiences, and so that's why those those dates I think nicely sum it up. The other key fact about millennials is most of us, uh, our parents are boomers, and that is a key defining feature of our generation as well. And what what makes that one of the key features? Like, what does that contribute to uh, the the picture of millennials? Well, you are a lot of who you are comes from your parents. And so two facts are important. One is, you know, the boomer generation is, is if you think of a population pyramid, right, in Canada, the United States, and in most of Europe, they're that bulge, that first bulge after World War II. Millennials are the second bulge, the, okay. the echo boom. And so it's being part of that bulge that's important when you think about our, our economic or political power. Mm-hmm. But also then being the children of boomers means we learn certain things from those parents and they pass on certain values that are shared and, and unique than when Gen X has some kids as they are, have now and, and instill some different perspectives and, and viewpoints of the world. You have a, a, a website devoted to Canadian millennials. Um, why is this a focus for you? Well, I'm I've been fascinated by generational differences for for quite some time, and and I think it's important to note when we talk about generational differences, like millennials or Gen X or Boomers, we're not talking about what makes a younger person different from an older person. There are life cycle effects that, as you get older, you change, and your your views of the world and priorities might change. But a generational analysis says again, those born in that twenty year period or thirty year period, um, twenty year period in the case of millennials. Are, are 
have many of the same attributes, same outlook, same viewpoints that are worth understanding. Why? One is because, particularly in the millennial case, there's so many of them. And so they have incredible economic and political power if they choose to use it. And two is, if you're an organization, if you are an employer, if you are a political party, understanding how a generation comes to be and how they express themselves, I think is a really valuable, it's not the only way to analyze behaviors or attitudes, but it's a, it's a useful way, I think, mm-hmm. which is why I spend a lot of time doing it. <laughs> then why are millennials different or what makes millennials different from, uh, say, the boomers? Well, I think there's two factors. One is how we were raised and the world in which we were raised, and two is the role that technology plays. So let me quickly go over the first one. Um, I think something different happened in the 1980s um, in terms of how boomers raised their children. Um, You saw an equalizing of children and families. You saw them being invited to the adults' table. You saw them being asked what they think about the world and and being far more influential in decisions that households made than than children of previous generations. Two is you you have a generation that um, was in school formal educational settings far earlier in their lives and for far longer in their lives. So I I say that we're really an institutionalized generation, which means we've had constant feedback and recognition. Our days have been structured. And it's not just in in junior kindergarten or senior kindergarten and and beyond, which, by the way, millennials are the first generation to to have those formal uh, levels of education. But we were in childcare earlier, and then we were put into after-school programs, um, whether it be hockey, dance, swimming, karate, music, basically for the typical millennial, and again, it's typical, not every Canadian millennial has experienced this, it's a life of being oversubscribed, right? And so structure and feedback and recognition are important to to how I think we we get motivated and and think about it. Lastly, all of this happened with the the self-esteem movement built into it. So a generation that weren't fa- failed at very much were told that they could be very successful. In fact, 85% of Canadian millennials tell us in the research we do that growing up, many people told them they could do anything that they wanted. You want to be a doctor, lawyer, prime minister. By the time you're 30, go off and do it. You want to be a podcast superstar, <laughs> anything is possible, right? The, the world is your oyster. So that's the first factor is this upbringing of that, that basically in, instilled over parenting, helicopter parents, we're incredibly special, and the world's our oyster. Add to that. Now, that alone would be enough to differentiate, I think, millennials from Gen X and, and boomers. But add technology and how fast technology has changed, which is affecting everybody. But millennials are really the first adopters to so much of the change that we've seen. So whenever some new way of consuming content came along, we know millennials were the first generation. They may not no longer be the first because there's that new, younger generations that are coming next. But uh, they are the first generation of digital natives, right? They grew up with technology. Some of us, like me, who's uh, born in 1981, a little bit older, didn't have a computer or a smartphone from the moment I was two years old. But I, because they were so key to my life and early in my life, I adopt and adapt uh, those technologies much quicker. So those two factors, how we were raised and the role that technology plays, I think has created for many, a larger gap between generations than I think existed previously. What is the change that happens with someone whose day is so structured uh, or who receives so much feedback uh, from an earlier age and for a longer time? 
Well, I think for the most part, I think most millennials are are sort of bred to be internal optimists, very, very positive about what they can do, at least early on in their lives until reality sets in. And then that avocado toast becomes highly uh, too expensive and, and out of reach. Um, that's that's one. But I also think there's there's a, a shift in hierarchies in many respects, or at least perceptually hierarchies change, right? Like I, I, I think of this, this personal example, you know, it was about five years ago, my mother, who right now is in her 60s, she's a boomer, she's that digital immigrant, really didn't know how to get, you know, didn't know a lot about technology, was really uncomfortable around it, came to my sister and I and said, we want, I want the Facebook, David and Stephanie. <laughs> and she didn't know how to get it, right? She thought you go to Best Buy, you buy it off a shelf, you install it. There was no implicit understanding. So think about it. My sister and I, like many kids in their households, have power over their parents that previous generations didn't right. have. That then translates into the workplace. It translates into many environments in which the, the power structure changes a little bit. And then add to the fact that we are, again, the first generation that truly felt uh, fully empowered by the internet, the, the the perception that we had unlimited amounts of information, you start to see in many professions, for example, in law enforcement, in the military, where there's strong hierarchical systems, the new recruits are, are questioning orders. They're questioning the way things are done. They're coming up with alternatives because they have this information. They've been doing it for most of their lives. That's, I think, the expression of, of this difference. Um, and so this internal optimism plus uh, weakening hierarchy and the ability to ask a lot of questions and perhaps perceive to know more than you maybe do, but at least believe you know more than you do, makes for a much more challenging employee to lead and manage and also um, creates a very powerful consumer who has much higher demands on brands today than I think 20 or 30 mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, I was thinking about what you were saying about uh, being challenging in the workplace. Is that um, uh, how does an employer adapt to that, or or should they adapt to that, or are they, you know, what's how does an employer uh, how does an employer deal with that? I think they have to deal with it. And I think you, you know, and I a lot of my public speaking and work is, is talking to just employers, small businesses, large businesses who are who are dealing with this uh, head on. And my perspective is not being an HR expert. Again, I'm a researcher. I sort of try to diagnose the problem and then hand it off to somebody to fix it. But I think it, it, it's about um, frame of mind and perspective, right? I think the most successful teams are the ones first that view it as a team. You work for, um, not you work for me, you work with me. I think it's really a millennial-friendly perspective. Mm-hmm. The other side of it is I think work has changed, Millennials come at jobs typically from the perspective of it's not a privilege that you're providing me a job. It's not a privilege that I get to work for you. Right. In fact, it's the flip. It's a privilege that I work for you, um, that you get to work with me, right? And so if that subtle change in how you approach leadership, that, that, that the people who work for you are helping you be successful, helping your organization make money or achieve social outcomes if you're a cause or a charity is is the kind of change I think millennials are forcing on organizations. And the ones that are, I think, ultimately successful are the ones that approach it that way. So talk to me about millennials and social media. Well, first is, I mean, uh, despite the uh, the obituary being written about Facebook, Facebook is not dying. <laughs> In fact, it's doing better than ever and it's quarterly 
Uh, numbers prove that. I think there is some some flux and changes in you know who's using what platform. Instagram's growing, all of that. That that's that's the aside. It's not going anywhere. What's fascinating to me about social media, and there's so much we can talk about, but for me, what's most interesting is a growing phenomenon about the role that social media is playing in how we make decisions. Um, we always humans have always cared what other people thought about them, right? The car I drive tells somebody about who I am. Where, so to, where social media takes that up to like number 11 is that the number of people you now are trying to impress, the number of people you're trying to um, communicate with um, is, is much larger. And that means, and I think it's, it's some, there's different ways of framing it, but it's like this era of personal branding is how I like to think about it. That Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, whatever platform you use, is your retail storefront. And the choices you make about what you put in that storefront is about telling the world who you are. So your cover page, your profile page, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going on vacation and taking a picture of some amazing place, posting it up. How quickly do people go back and look how many people liked it? Is a, is a, is a confirmation that we've become... Uh, this need for feedback, the need for gratification, and the role that social media plays in not only, f- I think, changing to some extent our behavior, the choices we're making about where we eat or what clothes we wear or, or what we do with our spare time, and the, the, the value of experiences being social currency is all tied to the fact that we need to share it and our world is, is, is viewing it. Um, I, I am eternally grateful to whoever, to the Zuckerbergs of the world for, <laughs> for not inventing Facebook until after I had left high school. Yes. Because I think that would be the worst possible experience to ever go through. I always use the example of, imagine you're a 16-year-old girl, you're about to go to your prom, you've never looked better, right? You're wearing a beautiful dress, and you take a picture, somebody posts it up on Facebook, and you see that your friends are getting more likes than you are. Like, how... Right. Horrible, yep. right? So there are downsides to the social media world, but I think it's in, that's an example of why it's so important, of why it, it can be such a, a miserable existence, given how um, important it is to defining who we are. And we use it as a platform to define ourselves to the broader world. So that ties back to what you were talking about um, uh, in the in the workplace and in hierarchies, like really looking for a peer to peer kind of feedback rather than a, a from uh, from above kind of feedback. Absolutely right. So what matters more is what our friends or our broader network, which are quote friends but not necessarily true friends, think about us and how they um, sort of validate very much, even through a simple like or a heart on Instagram, validate the choices that we're making in our lives or where we go again, spend our money or what we do for a living. Less so uh, today do people in positions of authority matter, right? So I don't need two restaurant critics or two movie critics on TV to validate my movie choices, right? Because I can get right. it validated from friends or I can go look at what the millions of people on Internet Movie Database are saying about it. It's, it's, it's flipped um, on its head, uh, again, why we make not completely, but why we make some of the choices we do and then how we are influenced into making those choices. And I will say this is not simply a millennial phenomenon. This is no, now no. happening across generation. But I think there's, it's, it's, it's more intense among younger generations who, who implicitly use this technology to far more right. uh, intensely. I, that, that really struck a chord for me because I'm, I'm slightly older than the millennial generation. I'm, I was born in 1975. And 
I was just thinking about movies. I mean, I care a lot about movies. And what my habit was, was to, when I was trying to decide what movie I was going to see, was to look at two or three film critics that I like trusted the opinions of and, and see what they had to say. And they were these two or three people who were ultimately uh, gatekeepers of movies uh, for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, now when I see so many people uh, – uh, Talking about things like the Rotten Tomatoes score or the cinema – what's the one? The cinema – anyways, like like these aggregators of thousands of reviews that then you just boil it down to a number yeah. where all of these reviewers are considered to be on exactly the same plane. And the, the first time I saw that, I was like, I was like, yeah, but, you know, Roger Ebert is worth like 50 of these other guys, isn't he? Like, you know, and, and, and now it's very – it's democratized. It's democratized. And, and ask, you know um, – uh, Big chain or small chain restaurant, or no chain restaurant, mm-hmm. the power of the Google score in driving, right. you know, out of towners to or, or TripAdvisor, in in driving, you know, um, guests to your hotels. Right, we've we've become a highly ratings and reviews are driving our behavior uh, in the same way that Siskel and Ebert yeah. used to drive our behavior in the past. Right, so we rely less on those. The reason I'm so fascinated, why we, I think it's important to look at it from a generational lens, whether you're selling a cell phone or you're trying to convince somebody to, to agree with your ideas, is if you put a generational lens on some of these things, it allows you to, to, to understand a little bit better what's driving the decision-making, but also, also how to reach and, and persuade, because I think there are some, some increasing generational gaps in those kinds of mm-hmm. things. We were talking a little bit earlier about security and about data security, and I, I was thinking about... Uh, my my parents and their comfort with the landline phone and their implicit trust of the landline phone, even though it's actually a, a relatively trivial you know uh, effort to to uh, hack into and listen in on somebody else's phone calls, um, but their complete distrust of uh, data on the internet of you know who's who's getting this information and 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 I was wondering if that is. Like when it comes to millennials, is there that same comfort then with data security on the internet because it's something they grew up with? I think so. I think that explains almost all of it. I I still am shocked to learn that my mother doesn't use online banking because she doesn't trust it. She doesn't implicitly trust it, right? She doesn't like giving her credit card out online. Whereas for me, it's like second nature. I know it off by heart. I'm entering it. Who knows who Mm -hmm. has my credit card, right? It's this weird... Um, and honestly, it, if somebody was targeting it, phone banking was way less secure then because, you know, if they're just outside it, my house, they could it's almost the as if, if if you look at it, there's a there's a relationship between your comfort with the technology and your and your perceived knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. And I use perceived because most people don't really know what they're using, but they think <laughs> they do. And your willingness to give up data and your willingness to not be so worried about it. Right. Uh, versus, as you said, those who perhaps don't know the technology as well and. Uh, don't use it as often are the most worried about their their data. I think it, I think that's that's what's driving it. I, I do wonder though, is as more of you know older Canadians or older consumers use more and more of this technology in different parts of their lives, do they become more um, comfortable right, with, more, with data sharing? Right? That, that they to know it, yeah. that you know, in the case of Netflix, the fact that Netflix can probably guess. Uh, to, 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 to within like screenshots of what I'm going to like um, doesn't bother me at all, right? Because That's a benefit to you. It's a yeah. benefit. I, yeah. I, you know, there's endless amounts of content. I know that it's going to show up to me. Now, on the flip side, I do believe that millennials are concerned about privacy. It's, 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 I think, a fallacy to say that they don't, but it's implicit in the bargain. 
that right. we, we have, right? And the moment, the reason the Facebook Cambridge Analytica was so risky to Facebook and, and how they responded, if they, if they responded uh, inappropriately, was that the moment that the bargain breaks down is the moment that, that people leave and find an alternative, right. right? And so that is where I think those digital native generations are going to be quite powerful and why I think technology companies are recognizing the importance of, of managing expectations and, and, and making sure people feel comfortable is that we know there's a bargain. I use Facebook. I don't have to pay for it. I get access to, to this network and, and I get my addictions you know, dealt with <laughs> um, and they get all my data. But the moment I feel that that data is being used either to hurt me or hurt others is the moment I think more people start to, to question it and maybe pull back the amount of data they share, which ultimately then makes Facebook as a revenue source for them useless because it's harder to target us. So one last question I want to ask you about uh, political activism amongst millennials. Uh, young people and activism, you know, that's – those are things that, that go hand in hand. But is there something different about what's happening with uh, the millennial generation? I think there is. There's two things. One is there's a myth that, that all millennials and young people in Canada are, are apathetic because – Except for the 2015 federal election, youth turnout typically is much lower. That is a myth. I think millennials are typically highly engaged in the issues they care about. Um, what's different is the notion of duty, the notion you're going to mm. vote, you're going to get involved in formal politics because it's something you have to do or you should do doesn't, I think, jive uh, with a generation that doesn't do anything because it's always been done. You have to give them a reason. And there has to be a, a call to action that, that really engages and mobilizes. I think we have plenty of proof points around the world that because, and this is a key fact to all your listeners, millennials make up the largest segment of the electorate in Canada, in the United States, and in many Western European countries. And when they collectively get together, and they don't actually collectively get together, but when they collectively <laughs> use this power... They show up and they vote and they vote for one option. They can have incredible disruptive impact, right? Think of not that Justin Trudeau becoming prime minister was disruptive, but he won his majority because youth voter turnout spiked almost 20 points and most of them voted liberal. There's no doubt in my mind that that gave uh, Mr. Trudeau the majority. He would have won, but it gave him that extra push. Two, you look at the UK, you look at Italy, you look at Bernie Sanders in the United States, all of those movements, UK is Jeremy Corbyn and the Five Star Movement in Italy, which you know, uh, are now part of the coalition government, are driven by young people. Mexico, um, recently, we had a new president in Mexico, leftist kind of populist, driven a large measure by young Mexicans who said the system isn't working and we need to change that. So... I think it is uh, there. There is an activism there. Not everybody, but that's true of every generation. But they 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 don't always show up at the ballot box, and so there's then this sense that they're somehow apathetic. They care a lot about issues they're passionate about, and could care less about things they're not passionate about. And that's the real challenge: is at times getting people who who are harder to reach are uh, constantly bombarded with more and more information and have endless amounts of things they could occupy their time with, getting them involved in formal politics has been still the, the harder thing to do. And, it, and I think 2015 in, in the Canadian example is proof that it can happen. But I also think that what happened here in Ontario a few weeks ago is proof yeah. that it doesn't have to always happen. And if they don't show up and vote, uh, you get 
Doug Ford. And, and I think that is uh, an example of, of how you can't take their support for granted. On the flip side, if you don't plan for them to show up, they'll probably show up and wreck things for you. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. My pleasure. Thanks. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? I am uh, abacusdata.ca. Our website for millennials is canadianmillennials.ca. And uh, follow me on Twitter, at Coletto D. Thank you very much. The 2020 Network is brought to you by Interact. Interact connects everyone to the limitless possibilities of digital payments. Whether you are sending, receiving, or requesting money, using Interact Debit to pay by card, phone, or smartwatch, or looking for a business payment solution, they provide fast, convenient, and secure access to your own money. 